Good morning, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very nostalgic text for me. Growing up in the Bible Belt, in the Deep South, very conservative culture, I've heard a lot of sermons on these particular verses, and they're sermons that usually sounded things like this, uh, redeem the time for the days are evil, don't drink any alcohol, listen to the right kinds of Christian music, and in everything give thanks. And they were almost treated as proverbial statements that had no relationship with each other, just like here's something that's true, here's a rule to live by. I think it misses the point to cut these up into little rules, little proverbs, to even misrepresent what the proverb even actually says to some degree. I think the point is, instead of Paul, the writer here, the Apostle Paul, instead of him describing a bunch of like pithy axioms to live by, he's really describing one way of living, or as we've seen as we walk through Ephesians, one way to walk. One way to put one foot in front of the other and take day-by-day, step-by-step decisions to follow Jesus. He's describing that one way, and that one way is a spirit-filled life. The theme, I think, here in the middle of this text is this. The one big idea, he's saying the spirit-filled life overflows with a countercultural wisdom and character of Jesus. And he's going to show us the spirit-filled life, five things here. The spirit-filled life is intentional, mindful, joyful, grateful, and deferential. Uh, So let's go. Verses 15 and 16, the spirit-filled life is intentional. Let's look at this. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And we caught the tail end of this last week with these words, look carefully, where basically what he's saying is pay attention. Pay attention to the walk of your life. And as I said a moment ago, I think he uses that word deliberately to show us that life is not lived in massive chunks at a time. It is lived by every day, step by step, sometimes seemingly insignificant decisions that we're making, little choices And you start stringing those choices and those steps together, and you start to realize there's a trajectory to my life. There's a direction to my life. I'm on a journey with Jesus or without Jesus. We're all walking somewhere and somehow. So he's saying, look carefully. That is, the the word here is literally the word accurate. So it's like, are the details and are the comprehensiveness of your life things that conform to and reflect Not only the law of God, but probably more importantly, the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. He goes on saying, make the best use of time. And it's interesting that this is actually the word redeem or ransom. 
about the only place we hear this word in our culture is like if there's a kidnapping and someone disappears and someone says, well, we demand, you know, a million dollars or $20 million ransom. And we understand that ransom is the price that someone would pay for the freedom of another individual. Same idea of like redemption. When we use that word in reference to Jesus and we even sing about it, like who redeems us? It is who paid this price to purchase our freedom from sin, death, and punishment and all of that. So it's that word. So he's saying something like this. Instead of buying someone's freedom or salvation, he's saying you buy up moments and opportunities of time. He's not just talking about time generally, but the the word that's used here is really like moments and opportunities. And I want you to think about it like this. We all have the same exact number of hours in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year. Same exact. There are some people who are very efficient with their use of time. There are some people who are very inefficient. There are people who are intentional, to use that word again, in how they use time and invest time. And there are other people that are just careless, like the day just goes by. And what I hear Paul saying here is that you have to pay a price to make the best use of your time. You have to make sacrifices, maybe not financially, But you have to make sacrifices, purchases, to say yes to something in order to say no to a bunch of other things. Back when I was working to save up money for Marty's engagement ring, very often I would go paint office buildings in the middle of the night when the doctors went home for the day or the, the lawyers, the accountants went home for the day and it's vacant overnight. And I would know, like, my friends are getting together, they're doing something really fun, and I had to make this choice. Like, where am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to invest? Because I want money to be able to buy this girl, like, a nice engagement ring, okay? That's the idea here. It's not that either thing is wrong, spending time with friends or working extra hours, but it's that we have to make choices, and we have to make intentional choices, or we're going to look back at our lives and realize a whole bunch of time, a whole bunch of days and months and years have passed, and I haven't been intentional with redeeming the time to accomplish God's ends. Paul goes on, verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Foolish is a compound word that's literally without mind, without thinking, without reasoning. He's saying the foolish are people who act without thinking through things. You ever, you know, as a parent, or maybe you were the child and your parents would say something like this, like just stop and think before you act. And Paul is saying, literally the compound word here is a fool is someone who just acts impetuously, just does the thing without thinking, what are my priorities or what are the right priorities that I should be acting on? What are the right principles that I should be acting on? What's the big picture? And how does this decision fit into the big picture? Am I doing something wise? What, what are the possible like unintended consequences of my actions? We think of things like this all the time of just even political decisions that in the moment, it's like, obviously, this is the right thing to do. And Paul is saying a fool is someone who doesn't think about like, well, what could happen here? Let's reason through this. Let's think through this. So he says, don't be foolish. But then the flip side is this call to understand what the will of the Lord is. You see that in verse 17. Okay. 
I love this because that, that word understand is, is literally, again, a compound word. And it's literally to send together or to put together. You're, you're synthesizing different things that you know about God, about his word, about the character of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, how God by his spirit is working in your lives, in the church, in our world. And you're starting to put these different things together. You ever watch like a, a crime show, a movie or a series where the detectives, the investigators, they have that big board. You've seen these. And, and they start collecting photographs, like crime scene photographs. They start collecting data from cell phones. They start collecting witness statements. And they start posting these on the board. You've seen these. And then they start drawing, like there are lines and connections between them. And it's like we're, we're putting the facts together to understand, like, what happened here? Who's guilty here? How do we prosecute this in a way that's effective? That's the word he's using here. So the big idea here with this first point is Paul's saying, don't just roll through life as aimlessly as everyone else. Don't just be carried along by the currents of fashion, politics, um, the, the shifting ethics of the world. Um, ideologies that pop up and everyone just kind of for a moment goes after these new ideologies like this is what we've waited for to solve it. And he's like, instead of just being carried along by the winds and currents of culture, he's like, do the hard work of discerning the kinds of things that please God. Take those facts. Take that information. Take your walk with God and conversations that you're having with God. Pay attention to those step by step decisions and ask yourself even this morning as I put the next step in front of the other and in front of the other and in front of the other and in front of the other is this leading me in the direction that I want my life to go and if not the Bible has a word repentance is like turn around because you can take the next right step in the right direction with an intentionality that reflects the heart of God the mind of Christ and the wisdom of the Spirit, which is what we're talking about here. I don't want us to just let life happen and wake up months or years from now and be like, how did I end up here? How is this my story? And if some of you are even waking up that way this morning, again, there's hope because today you can change. Today you can take the first step to live this Spirit-filled life that's intentional. All right, number two here, verse 18. He goes on to say the spirit-filled life is mindful. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And I already said that I think the filling of the spirit is really the key here that the text is built around. So it's important to unpack what he's saying here, okay? Notice Paul falls, follows this customary form of like, don't do this, but do this instead. So he's not just like, stop, you're bad. But he, he so often offers this alternative in Christ of like, yes, put this off, but put this on in its place as your mind is renewed by God. And what is he saying to put off? First of all, he's saying put off drunkenness. It literally means drinking to excess or intoxication. Why? Well, what's the problem? He says, well, excess leads to debauchery, which is a word that, again, a, a compound word. Without safety or wellness is literally what it means. Without safety or wellness or without a cure. And it talks about, as it's used in Greek literature, it denotes a reckless, disorderly, excessive, wasteful life. 
And he's saying, don't drink to excess. Don't be intoxicated because it produces a certain kind of life that is out of control. That's, that's his point, okay? Now, let's pump the brakes on this for a minute because we're here, okay? I want to note what the text does and does not say, okay? It does not say don't drink wine. Let's just be agreed on that. It says don't get drunk with wine. And I think most of you are mature enough to know the difference between a drink and drunkenness. You know, every state in our country knows the difference. In fact, they assign a certain blood alcohol content at which they say you are intoxicated. You're not just drinking, but you're drunk. You're impaired. And I'm going to use that word a couple times because I think that's really the problem is impairment. Impairment. Okay? It's not that alcohol is inherently evil. That's not what Paul's saying. It's not. I mean, Jesus turned water to wine at a wedding feast, okay? The problem is that excess alcohol impairs. It impairs your judgment. It impairs wise decision-making. Alcohol as a category of chemical is called a depressant. It not only messes with your behavior, but it messes with your brain. Let me share a few things if you don't know. Excessive alcohol contributes to accidents, injuries, increased violence, lowered inhibitions around risky sexual behavior, birth defects, miscarriages, liver failure, depression and anxiety, poor sleep, various cancers, high blood pressure, heart disease, social problems, and addiction. And everything I just said comes from the CDC, not the KJV. Okay, you can get mad and just be like, why are you up in arms against alcohol? And it's, it's because excessive alcohol impairs you. And God is concerned about that. Let's just take a step back from this specific thing, which can be a divisive issue. You're made in the image of God. That's why God cares deeply about alcoholics and alcoholism. Because you were made to function not impaired by a chemical substance or by anything else. You were made to be free to serve Christ. And if we're ingesting something or addicted to something that impairs our ability to listen to the wisdom of God and to walk in reasonableness and self-control, that's concerning. Now, this is scripture. Proverbs 23 says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed drink, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. And you hear that impairment, that physical, like biological, physiological disaster that they understood even in the days of the Proverbs. And again, I want to come back to this word impairment, the root of the problem. How are you free to serve Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you're allowing anything else to impair your judgment and essentially control your life? And it may just be a few hours at a time. 
but your life is not controlled by God and by some of these substances at the same time, how are you free to embody the life of Christ and the love of Christ to a dark world if you yourself are under the controlling influence of something that strips away your humanity and is harming you? Now, I don't want to let other things off the hook simply because he's talking about wine. I believe the problem is far bigger than alcohol, not smaller than wine. Let's agree, okay? The drugs on our streets, drugs like heroin, meth, fentanyl, trank, cocaine, bath salts. Well, I didn't, he didn't say those things. He just said wine. Well, I think we draw the principle of like, is there something that's controlling me, impairing me? making me at least temporarily unable to pursue the mind of Christ, to live a self-controlled and reasonable life, and then it's addictive. I mean, certainly not talking directly about this, but what about pornography? Another addictive behavior that impairs your judgment, ruins relationships, and literally rewires your brain. Okay, so the application is what's your thing? And I mean, what's your thing that impairs your judgment, that dehumanizes God's image, that enslaves you, and that makes it virtually impossible for you to live mindfully? Because I don't want to let all those things off the hook just because Paul used the word oinos, and he's talking about wine, okay? All right, that's the negative. What's the replacement? He says, do not be intoxicated. Do not be consumed by controlling substances and given to excess, but... Be filled with the Spirit. And notice the imperative, be filled. It is a command that you and I, as followers of Jesus, be filled. It's, it's be filled to overflowing, be completely full, be, be fully provided for. That's the idea. But I want you to notice it's a passive command. And it's passive in the Greek. It's a, it's a passive verb. It's like be filled well, I have my role of going to God and saying, God, I empty myself of other things that are crowding you out, but I want to be filled by you. But now God, by his spirit, has to do the work that only God can do of filling and satisfying you. And I, I think they're fascinating. I can only say a couple of these for time, but I think there are fascinating parallels and contrasts between alcoholism and the Holy Spirit. Okay. If you drink excessively, which is your choice, you're the one doing it. The alcohol will control you. you, you will, there, there's a point where you go from being active to being passive, and certain things will happen to your body, to your mind, to your actions, to your inhibitions, to all of that, simply because you've taken something in that's now working on you from the inside out in a very holistic way. Okay? Okay. Do you understand how the Holy Spirit does the same thing? Like, we're invited to make room for God and say, God, have me, have my life. But if the Spirit's in you, the Spirit is just automatically doing what the Spirit does, like producing his fruit in us. But contrast, alcohol, as I said, is a depressant. I think of the Spirit as a stimulant. What I mean is, like, Alcohol slows you down and makes you lose control. The Spirit makes you come alive. It makes you more alive. It makes you more aware. It makes you more in control than less. Alcohol causes you to act and think in shameful ways that later on, with a right mind, you will regret. 
but the Holy Spirit causes you to act in ways that are honorable, that come with no regret. John Stott says, if excessive alcohol dehumanizes, turning a human being into a beast, the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human, for he makes us like Christ. And I think you'll see that in these brief remaining points. All right, the Spirit-filled life is intentional. It's mindful. Number three, the Spirit-filled life is joyful. Verse 19 Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. And the more I study this, the less I think the point is like, what are the nuances of those three words? Like, what's a hymn versus a psalm versus a spiritual song? And I mean, the the psalm is the easy one. It's like when you were singing scripture, particularly the psalms, which was common in Hebrew culture, um, was brought into the Christian church in the early days. But I don't think the point is, like, what are the differences between these things to make sure we're singing the right songs and the right kinds of music? And I certainly don't want to be dogmatic about it. Isn't the point simply that the spirit-filled person is a joyful person? It's like, think about the person you know who's going through life, and they're always singing or humming, like, even to the point of annoyance to other people. They just always have a song. And sometimes those songs are very deliberately like, God, I'm just singing with joy in my heart this song to you, or I'm commanding my heart to, to worship you and honor you and praise you because I'm struggling with something right now that's really hard, but I'm going to sing to you, God, or I'm going to sing to people around me. And, and by the way, you notice that, that it's saying like we're, we're addressing, we're singing to one another too. It's not simply that we're like, I have a direct pipeline to God. I'm just, this is just for God. It's like, When you show up here on Sundays in particular, or if your small group sings, or you're just encouraging someone with a song in your car, there is a sense in which you are building up other people around you by adding in your voice. And if you play an instrument, that's the idea of this melody part, is, is literally like singing and playing an instrument. And there are Sundays I know that I have shown up here not in as good a place as other Sundays. And part of what I was seeking was not just, again, that direct pipeline to God, was like, I need to be around other people who are in a better place than me right now and hear their voices say, God is worthy this morning. I'm going to sing of him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to be joyful in him. And I think this is really important for our generation because one of the hallmarks of this generation, I was just reading it again Friday, one of the hallmarks of this generation is how angsty and, and anxious they are, or we are. Just anxiety. And the, the article is saying, like, there has never been a more anxious generation than Gen Z. I mean, there are many reasons for that. I could go into, like, what effect is media and social media and all that having on us. But I, I just think the idol of autonomy has not done a good job of bringing us the freedom and the hope and the joy that it promises, where it's like autonomy is, is you do you. Like no one can tell you who you are and how you should be living your life. And you go try to just carve your thing out and be like, this is me. And that's not going that well for most of us. Because that's not where joy is found, actually. I think actually that, that self-focus, you ever get in this place where it's like, it could be anxiety, it could be depression, it could be sadness, it could be fear. There is a very healthy place for, for therapy, for counseling, especially biblical counseling or counseling that is built on a foundation of the gospel understanding of this is how God made you, this is how you broke, 
and this is the Spirit's path to your healing. So, so don't hear me saying don't go to a counselor, just, just get more Spirit. But I think we underestimate how much and, and how the fullness of the Spirit could banish and replace many of the things we struggle with. I think simply taking our eyes off of this, that's this point, taking our eyes off self to say, God, I'm going through this stuff and I'm processing this and this weighs heavily on my heart. My thoughts won't turn away from it. So I'm going to sing, like literally sing. This is not a metaphor for something else. It's like, I'm going to sing. I'm going to put a song on and just be like, I'm hurting. I'm broken. I'm messed up. But God, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing to you. I'm going to sing to others around me. And let's not underestimate what a spirit-filled heart and life could do in terms of just driving away depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, bipolarism. And again, don't hear me saying walk away from your doctor. Don't hear me say walk away from your therapist. Uh, great. Like we, we need medicine. We're thankful for medicine. I'm saying let's seek the fullness of the spirit. And don't ever sell short what the spirit of God wants to do, not just with like your spiritual side, but with all of you, your mind, your heart, your emotions, your reactions, all of that. The spirit-filled life is joyful. Verse 20, number four, the spirit-filled life is grateful. He says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I think the basic meaning of this verse is really straightforward, but I do want to clarify a couple of things. What's clear is the spirit-filled life is a life of constant gratitude. That is clear. And the giving of thanks is the word eucharisteo, which actually in a few minutes will come to, and, and, and we're not so highly liturgical or like Catholic in doctrine that we would say like this is the Eucharist, but the Eucharist simply means the giving of thanks. And so when we come to the, the body and the blood of Christ represented like in the bread and the wine, we are celebrating his death together as a way of saying every week, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice of yourself. Thank you for redeeming me from sin and the pit and my own self. So Eucharist. And I think it's important that this word be understood. It's not simply a feeling of thanks. It is an expression of thanks. And I would differentiate that because I think certain things, like I, I know men in my culture, okay, I'll just pick on me and us guys. Like we'll be like, oh, I, I felt that thing. I just like, it was awkward to say because we're just not that grateful of a generation or, you know, we're guys. Well, get over it. It's an expression of thanks, giving thanks always and for everything. So we verbalize that. We say that. And something else I want to clarify here is like, well, aren't there things in your life that you're not grateful for and would be weird to be grateful for? Like who's like, God, thank you so much for that F on the test. Uh, praise you that I got to take the MCAT again or the LSAT or something really serious. Thank you, God, that I lost my job. And I didn't get that other job that I wanted. Thank you that my spouse walked away from me. Thank you that I have cancer. Thank you that my child was miscarried. See, that's weird. I mean, we're not like, thank you for evil, God. 
Actually, I, I don't love the translation, giving thanks always and for everything. It'd be better translated because of everything. That's what the word actually is. But, but the big idea is not that you literally thank God for everything. It's that you choose to thank God in the midst of everything. It's that you, you choose to acknowledge the hurt, the loss, the pain, your frustration, your struggle, and bless the name of the Lord anyway. That's the idea here. And an honest way of doing this is something like this. This, this is something I have to pray often. It's like, Father, I struggle to thank you for my chronic pain. I'm, I'm not thankful for the pain. I'm not. And maybe I should be, but I'm not. I am thankful for a Savior, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and felt pain in his body, unspeakable pain, so that he is not only a sympathetic high priest, but he is an empathetic high priest. He feels with me as I pray to him and say, I'm struggling with my attitude today. I'm quick-tempered today and not to excuse sin, but it's like I'm in a lot of pain. And I can say things like, I'm thankful for the constant reminder that you will one day make all things new. And I'm not just going to be this disembodied spirit like, yay, I don't have back pain because I don't have a back. It'll be like, no, it's a renewed, restored, perfect, transformed body that does not feel pain. Because that's what you have in store. I can say things like, thank you for being faithful to me on my worst days. When I am grumpy and irritable and, and, and not joyful and grateful like you call me to be, I'm disobeying you. I'm dishonoring you. I'm probably dishonoring my family. But you're still faithful to me. And in these things, I want to bless your name. And it's a call just like, are we known for being negative, critical, complaining? It's like everything's going well, but you're just looking for the one thing that's off. You're like, well, that's, that's how I'm wired. Yeah, me too. So, like, let's change. <laughs> or let's, let's get the filling of the Spirit that changes us. So that we are these kinds of joyful, grateful people, not critical, angry, angsty. Finally, number five, verse 21, the Spirit-filled life is deferential. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'll say this, this verse is a very important hinge in the text because he's ending this section on what does it look like to be a spirit-filled person? Well, it looks like submitting one to another out of reverence for God. What we're going to come to in the upcoming weeks is he's going to say now that we're submitted to one another in the fear of God, there are specific forms or specific relationships in which a particular submission is also expressed where someone like a father does have a role over his children, for example. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's biblical. But this is a hinge that we got to understand what we come to next week and in subsequent weeks is all set in the context of mutual submission. And by the way, when Paul said these words in his culture, submission or the call to submission from like a religious leader would not have been unusual. No one would have been shocked by that. Like, <gasps> he's talking about submission. Everybody talked about submission. Hupatasso, to arrange yourself under. Like all the gurus talked about hupatasso. Of course you arrange yourself under. Of course you have parents. Of course you have political leaders. You have religious leaders that you respect. And you generally submit your life to and listen to what they say and benefit from God's ordained leadership in their lives. The shocking thing to this culture was, wait, to one another? 
to one another. Now, I agree with Brian Chappell and other theologians that say this isn't an indiscriminate requirement that everyone submit to everyone else all at the same time. That makes no sense. Like, if my children are like, hey, we just, and we went through this last night, uh, we just want to eat starches, like fries. Is that, is that cool? And we're like, no, you still got to, we just got to get some macros in you. We got to like some protein, some fat, and then you can have the fries. I'm just trying to keep you alive at this point. Okay. But to say like, I'm called in that situation to submit to every whim of my child. I mean, there's an age at which um, we got brand new Carly baby back here. Like our, our youngest in the covenant family right here. Okay. Okay. You would not be like, well, maybe you do. An infant's a bad example because they, they are very loud and they tell you when they want something. And you do kind of you do kind of submit to them, which is part of the point here. But there are times where it's like, you know, a child is calling for something that you're like, this is not healthy. Like, I'm called to lead. Also, we don't want some kind of like absurd scenario where we're all simultaneously submitting to each other. And it's like, you first. And it's like, no, 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 you first. And it's like, no, I insist. And we're just sitting here like going around and around and like nothing's happening. But I don't want to make too little of this point. There are many ways of submitting to or arranging ourselves under other people that doesn't involve an abdication of God's authority. Okay? Like... Put someone else's needs, priorities, and wishes before your own. You're arranging yourself under. You're saying, I hear you. You prioritize this. You want this. You love this. I'm going to submit my needs, my priorities. It's, it's, it's Paul in Romans and other places saying, don't just think on your own things, but think also on the things of others is a form of submission. What about letting other people inform your decisions or even make the decisions for you? He's not like, nope, the father's got to make all the decisions in the household and devoid of, that's crazy. Like, the more I can defer and be like, what, what do my kids want that honors God? I mean, my, my boy has a, he's in the state championship hockey game this afternoon. Like, what do you want to do? Well, I want to go to church and prioritize Jesus, and I also want to blitz out of here and go play in the state championship. All right, let's do that, okay? There, there are ways of respecting other people and arranging under by simply saying, you're all going to have a voice. You're going to speak into this decision. We're going to take other opinions and perspectives into account as we seek to even lead wisely. What about giving up having to be right when it's actually not a clear issue in Scripture? That's a way of submission, of saying, I don't have to have it my way. It's just, it's not simply my perspective or my way. What about surrendering control when you can or surrendering thinking that your perspective or your feelings or your opinions are the only ones that matter? You know, when you stop in a conversation of conflict, like with a spouse, with a friend, and you're like, man, I have only been looking at this through my perspective and how you hurt me and what I feel. And a way that you submit the way that you arrange yourself under is by saying, I care about your perspective. I want to hear, I want to think things through from your perspective. Okay, and I hope that makes sense of what we come to in the upcoming weeks. So let's just come back in closing here to this 30,000 foot view. I said the, the big idea here is that the spirit-filled life overflows with the countercultural wisdom and character of Jesus. Let's look at this again. These are not traits that our culture celebrates. Wisdom, 
reasonableness, sobriety, self-control, joyfulness, gratitude, humility, deference. Those are not the values of our culture. They're not the value of right-wing culture. They're not the values of left-wing culture. These are the values of Jesus. And I want to point out not only how countercultural they are, but how paradoxical they are. Because I almost let off this, this morning saying this. Like, think of the wisest person you know or the, the wisest person that you can picture. And you get to use your imagination a little bit. And for, and for me, I just picture like this old person sitting on top of the mountain, like this sage that everyone goes up to be like, hey, wise sage, I have this question for you. And he's like, no, let me just dispense the truth and tell you the way it is. But he's like, he's somber, kind of sour, um, does not interact with, and I'm like, no, that's, that's not the picture at all. And what's so paradoxical is that the wise person is not proud, boring, analytical, or sour. The wise person is stunningly intentional and mindful, but also joyful and grateful. And I'm sharing this with, with Richard this week. Is like, here, here are kind of the worship things. Here's, here's where we're going. And he's like, oh, it's like Tom Bombadil in Lord of the Rings. And I was like, yeah. Tom Bombadil, Lord of the Rings. It's like, I don't remember that character from the movies. And it literally says Peter Jackson made a director's decision to exclude him from the movies because he added nothing. Well, so I went back and read, read a bunch about Tom Bombadil. Not that there's a bunch to read, but everyone's psychoanalysis of Tom Bombadil. How about that? And it's, what, what does he actually say in the books? How is he actually characterized in the books? And if, like, one other person besides Richard knows, Brennan, if one other person besides Richard and... If anybody besides the Lawrences know Tom Bombadil, bearded man who's considered the greatest in... He's the greatest in The Lord of the Rings. He's the, he's the greatest. He's greater than the, the powerful forces of evil, and he's greater than the powerful forces of good. Seems like a reasonable character to leave out of the movie. Um, characteristic was just he was joyful and he was always singing. And other people would note of him, like, the ring has no power over him. It just it has no power. It has power over everyone else. But it doesn't have power over him. Because he's this wise, reasonable guy with a song in his heart all the time. Like, following God, basically. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I, like this particular text kind of hit me. It's like, man, we can go there about alcohol if we really want to, or what kind of songs. And I just back away at the 30,000 foot level, and I'm like, can you imagine a Christian culture that the world looks at, and they're like, I, I hate them, I disagree with them, but ugh, they're so reasonable. They're so thoughtful and intentional about the way they live their lives. And I thought that would make them like, like angry at everybody else and super critical and, and arrogant and so rigid. And I'm finding the exact opposite, that in their reasonableness and their mindfulness and their sobriety, they are so joyful, so satisfied, so fulfilled in this life that they live. They're grateful, they're humble, they're deferential. They care about my perspective, even if they disagree with me at the end of the day and still call me to repentance. Can you imagine what God could do 
with that kind of individual spirit-filled life, let alone a community of faith that says, God, I want to clear out the stuff in my life, good or bad, that is preventing me from being a spirit-filled person, that is preventing us from being a spirit-filled church, because I want you to have all of me, all of us. We want to live this way with a countercultural, paradoxical wisdom and character of Jesus.